Let's now look to the Lord for strength by paying careful attention to his word. So please open up your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 10 as we consider the final vision in the book of Daniel. As you are aware, there are four apocalyptic visions in the second half of Daniel. Uh, one in chapter 7 concerning the four beastly kingdoms and the conquering son of man. One in chapter 8 concerning the kingdoms of Persia and Greece. One in chapter 9 where Daniel is told of God's restoration plan for his people. It's drawn out schematically in 70 weeks of years. And then finally, we get one great big vision in chapters 10 to 12, in which Daniel is given some very detailed prophecies about the kingdom of Greece and its followers, followed by snapshots of what will happen at the very end of time, even leading up to the resurrection of the dead, of the resurrection of the just and unjust. Now, chapter 10 sets the stage for it all. It sets the stage for the detailed uh, prophecies of chapters 11 and 12. And the whole point of this vision is to strengthen Daniel. It's to strengthen him and to strengthen the exiles and strengthen even us and give us hope. The vision is for our comfort and encouragement so that we might remember who our God is and remain steadfast in the face of all evil. So look with me at chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, uh, verse 1. And let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for you are the strength of your people. Show us the glory of Christ, that we might know his peace in the midst of a turbulent world. Teach us to always look to you, knowing that Christ has conquered and that he will bring us safely home. May we be faithful in prayer, relentless in our battle against sin, and eager in our pursuit of righteousness. In his name we pray. Amen. Have you noticed how different people can have different views about a place? To one person, a city may seem colorful and vibrant, and to another person, that same city may simply seem crowded. To some, the city of Sharjah may seem less glamorous than Dubai and more restrictive, but to others, Sharjah feels unhurried, less complicated. See, part of the reason why people see things differently has to do with factors that are important to them. So what you hold in your heart to be important and valuable affects how you view and interpret reality. This is true even in the way that people look at the world at large. To some, the world is a playground and we are here to have fun and make the best use of it, live in the present, be the captain of your fate, who knows what tomorrow brings. But this is not the way Christians view the world at least not the Christians who are reading their Bibles carefully. A Christian recognizes that he or she belongs to Jesus Christ. A Christian believes that there's more to reality than just matter, things that you can see. In fact, we believe that an invisible God, who is spirit, created all that is visible and real. As Christians, we believe that the world we live in is not neutral to God, but fallen. Mankind is at enmity with their maker. We also recognize that we too were once in that predicament. We were once at enmity with God and under his wrath. According to Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3, we were once spiritually dead in our sins. We followed a particular course, a way of life marked by sinful desires and disobedience to God. And that course, that way of life was influenced by Satan and his demons. These are invisible and evil spirit beings who are now at work in the sons of disobedience, at work in the hearts of those who do not follow and obey Jesus. And so we view the world differently. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to live in the world, but not of it. 
This world is not our home. Uh, it is perishing. This present evil age is passing away. We're not citizens of this world, but of the new Jerusalem, the new earth that Christ will usher in when he returns. And so this present evil age is hostile to Christ and his people, the church. God has put enmity between his children and the children of the devil. The world is not a playground to the Christian, but a spiritual battleground. So the church in this present age is not the church at rest, but the church militant, marching towards our heavenly home, engaging in spiritual warfare against the triple threat of the world, our flesh, and the devil. And so we engage in this warfare, not by our own strength, but by faith in our Savior who has won the battle against Satan, sin, and death. And he will come back one day and put an end to all the kingdoms of this world and will establish his kingdom in glory forever. It is his power that we rely on as we trust in his spirit-inspired word to make us holy, to sanctify us, to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And so we relate to this world just like Daniel related to Babylon. Just like Daniel related to Babylon. Daniel knew that no matter how glamorous or powerful Babylon was, no matter how long he lived there, he knew that Babylon was not his home. Even though the people of Israel were in exile because of their covenant unfaithfulness, God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah that he would bring his people back to the land of Israel. And God would do this not because the exiles were righteous. No, he did it because of his own mercy. When Daniel prayed for the restoration of his people, the Lord revealed to him through a vision that the restoration of his people would take longer than he thought it would, but it would also be more glorious than he could ever imagine. And so the restoration of Israel would, would occur in two stages. First, through the decree of King Cyrus, the exiles would be allowed to return to their land. And secondly, God would restore their relationship to him through his coming Messiah. This is what God revealed to Daniel in that vision of 70 weeks. God had decreed a full and complete period of 70 weeks of years to accomplish his saving purposes for his people, to atone for their sins and establish his forever kingdom. Now, this 70 weeks, 70 times 7, which equals to 490 years, is not to be taken literally but to be understood symbolically and theologically. Under the law, God had decreed that after seven weeks of years, seven times seven, that's 49, the people were to declare a jubilee year. So the 50th year was a year of jubilee. When the trumpet would sound on the day of atonement, slaves would be set free, debts would be forgiven, property would be returned, and the people and the land would enter into a time of rest. So the year of jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor was to mark a time of redemption, release, restoration, and rest. And so when we look at this number, 490 years, this is emblematic of 10 jubilees, 49 times 10, intensifying this idea of jubilee to a climactic or ultimate jubilee. And to break down things for Daniel, God divides that 70 weeks into three periods of time. So there's a short period of time, seven weeks, which extends from the time that Jeremiah prophesies the end of the exile to the decree of King Cyrus. Then there's an extended period of time, that's 62 weeks, which is described as a troubled time in which the temple and the city of Jerusalem are rebuilt. And that's what chapter 11 of Daniel speaks to, that troubled period where there are lots of wars and political drama. And then finally, there's that climactic, period of time, that one week, the 70th week when Christ comes. So you see how these 70 weeks point to the ultimate jubilee in Christ in the fullness of time, that climactic week, Jesus comes to save his people. In the middle of the week, he atones for his people and he inaugurates the new covenant with his people. And by his once for all sacrifice, he puts an end to the sacrificial system. But then Daniel also sees that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed after that. This points to the destruction of the temple uh, in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus. 
the people of Israel will bring this upon themselves for rejecting their Messiah. Now, all of that is what Daniel saw. And that was a lot. Just as you're hearing the summary of all of this, that was a lot to process for Daniel. Now, when Daniel saw that vision, the time of exile was almost up. And so he must have wondered about that extended troubled time of 62 weeks that would lead up to the coming of the Messiah. And so God once again sends his angel to reveal to him a vision of that period in detail. But before he does that, the Lord prepares Daniel by strengthening him. He strengthens him in response to prayer. And so as we look at this passage, we'll see Daniel's concern and his steadfastness in prayer. We will see him gaze upon spectacular glory. And we will see how he learns about the spiritual warfare that goes on behind the scenes of history. So those are the points of the sermon this morning. Steadfast prayer, spectacular glory, and spiritual warfare. Steadfast prayer, spectacular glory, and spiritual warfare. But first, the narrator tells us about the setting in which Daniel is praying. Look at verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. Now, if you're following the events that unfold in the book of Daniel, if you're following those events carefully, this ought to be shocking. Just that one line. Do you remember when Cyrus issued the decree? 538 BC. It was in his first year after Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. It happened just as Jeremiah and Isaiah prophesied. The Lord worked in the heart of this pagan king to free the exiles. And then they returned to the land of Israel in stages to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now at the end of chapter 1 verse 17, do you remember what the writer says? We're told that Daniel served in his official capacity till the first year of Cyrus. He was a faithful Israelite, a man belonging to the remnant. That's an Old Testament term, remnant to describe Israelites who were trusting in the promises of God. This man who was brought to Babylon as a captive in his teens was now in his late 80s. And remember all that he's been doing. He's been confessing his sins and the sins of his people, asking for the Lord's forgiveness. The way that he kept time revolved around the time of sacrifices at the temple. He longed for true worship to be restored in the temple at Jerusalem. He longed for the city to be rebuilt. rebuilt. So you would think that when Cyrus issued the decree that the exiles could return, Daniel would be the first one to get on the bus. But it's the third year and he's still there. He's still there. He's still at the place which gave him a pagan name, Belteshazzar. Why hasn't Daniel gone home? You know, some think that Daniel was too old and frail to make the journey. Others think he stayed to use his influence to make sure the repatriation process was executed well, to make sure everyone got out, but then he died before he himself could leave. The truth is, we simply don't know. But we do know what was going on during this time. Now, circumstantially, there were two things that could have given Daniel great grief. One, not everyone wanted to go back. People had become so accustomed to living in Babylon. They became very comfortable. They did not want to lay hold of the promises and obey the Lord if it meant inconvenience and hardship. Does that sound familiar? Friends, an unwillingness to trust and obey the Lord's promises just because the path that he has ordained for us is, na is narrow and hard, that demonstrates a lack of love for the Lord and a lack of confidence in his good goodness and wisdom. Now, is that a sin? Yes, it is. I mean, what could be a greater insult to his 
gracious and wise character than to say, I don't like where this is going. See, many years later and many kings later, the Jews were still in Persia. Just read the book of Esther. Secondly, around this time, though the first wave of exiles were back in the land and had begun to rebuild the temple, they faced a lot of opposition from the locals, from the Samaritans, from adversaries in the land. In fact, this opposition brought a grinding halt to the temple building project and it stopped for almost 15 years. You can read about this in the book of Ezra. Now, Daniel would have certainly received troubling reports of this. And yet this was but the beginning of that troubled time. It was in this setting that Daniel receives this word. Look at the text. A word was revealed to Daniel and the word was true. And it was a great conflict. You know, some versions will say it was about a great conflict. The word for conflict can be translated as warfare. This was about a great warfare. And as we shall see, the warfare was both heavenly and earthly. The narrator tells us, and he, that's Daniel, understood the word and had understanding of the vision. The word that was revealed was the vision. And the inspired writer tells us that it is the truth. It corresponds to reality, which means it's worthy of our meditation and acceptance. And when Daniel was shown this vision, he understood it with God's help. Now the historical setting suggests to us that all is not well, but this becomes clearer when we see what Daniel was doing at that time. Look at verse two. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. The Hebrew text says three weeks of days. So 21 days. He was grieving. <clears throat> but that's not all. Notice what he did in his grief. He was fasting and praying. Verse 3, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. So he abstained from rich food. This was a selective fast. Nor did I anoint myself at all. So no aftershave lotion. Perfumed anointing oils were used in those days to, to groom yourself. It, it also signified rejoicing. And here Daniel's doing the opposite of that. He's depriving denying himself to signify his grief. And he did that, the text tells us, for three full weeks of his mourning. Now, why do I say he was fasting and praying? Well, because of verse 12. Look at verse 12. The angel tells him, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. See, Daniel is doing what he did in chapter 9, when he is grieved by the actions of his people and the trials that have come up, he prays. See, this is a man who is steadfast in prayer. This is a man who, in his discouragement, turns to the Lord in prayer. Moreover, he knows that he is loved by God and that God answers his prayers. Daniel knew that the Lord had promised in chapter 9 that in a troubled time, the temple and the city would be rebuilt, so he fasts and prays according to God's will. But we can get a hint of what Daniel was praying for by noting how he keeps time. Just look at the text. Does the author give us any more information about those days in which he fasted and prayed? Yes, he does. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. Now, we don't know exactly what Daniel was doing there on the banks of this river. We know that he was there with others. Verse 7 says so. There were other men there with him. Uh, perhaps he was there to pray, as the exiles often would. We hear of this in Psalm 137, verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Now the first month was the month of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. That's when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, the Passover, was celebrated on the 14th day of the first month, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the next seven days. So a total of 21 days. Daniel has been thinking about the Lord's redemption of his people from slavery. And given how many did not want to leave Babylon, and given the trials that the temple builders were facing in the land, Daniel was probably fasting and praying, saying, Lord, deliver your people once again. 
Deliver us from our sins. Deliver us from our trials, just as you did at the time of the Exodus. After all, Daniel has learned from his previous vision that true restoration from exile lies not in a physical temple in an earthly Jerusalem, but in the Messiah and his work. And when we get to the end of chapter 12, he will learn something even more amazing. Daniel will learn that his true inheritance, his allotted place, is not in a piece of real estate in the land of Israel, but that he will rise from the dead and claim his heavenly inheritance. You'll see that in Daniel 12, 13. But for now, he prays for all that God had promised to do for his people in the years leading up to that. Leading up to that. Probably praying for the earthly restoration of the temple and the city in that troubled time. So Daniel is praying for a promise or a blessing that's in the future and something that he will not be alive to see. And yet he fasts and prays for them because he trusts in God's power to bring them to fruition. Remember, Daniel hasn't been given specific dates. He's only been shown a succession of events. And yet he prays in faith, asking God to do what he promised to do. You see, Daniel belongs to that group of faithful Old Testament saints of whom the writer to the Hebrews speaks of in this way. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the king things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. See, true restoration would come in the fullness of time. But Daniel prays not just for the end, but for everything else leading up to the end. Friends, Daniel's faithfulness in prayer ought to encourage us to pray in a similar way. Beloved, we ought to pray being confident that the Lord loves us and that he will answer our prayers when we pray according to his will. But we also ought to pray not just for the end, not just for Christ's return and for our glorification, not just for that time when our tears will be wiped away and there'll be no more sin and no more sorrow. We must certainly pray for those things. We must certainly pray, your kingdom come. But we must also pray for everything else leading up to that. Everything else leading up to our glorification. For the growing Christ-likeness of one another. For the purity of the church. For the clarity of our witness. For our sanctification. For the genuineness of our love. For our evangelism. For the powerful work of His Spirit in our lives. Brothers and sisters, do you pray for these things? Is this a part of your everyday routine as strangers and pilgrims. Make sure you come to our members meeting this evening so that we can pray for these things. Beloved, we are not sufficient for all the things that God has called us to do. Isn't that what we sang? The strength to follow your commands could never come from us. Now we ought to pray for one another that he would strengthen us by his spirit in our inner being that we would be able to trust and obey him. But the one thing, the only thing that will stir our hearts and sustain our prayers is the glory of Christ revealed to us in his word. That's what we need to meditate on if we are to be steadfast in prayer. And this is what Daniel is shown in response to his prayer. He is given a glimpse of the glory of God. And that brings us to our second point. Daniel in his vision is given a glimpse of God's spectacular glory. Look at verses 5 to 6. I lifted up my eyes and behold. You know, this sentence introduces the vision. Now it begins. A man clothed in linen. That's what he saw. Now, remember that in apocalyptic visions, images are visual metaphors. They're meant to convey familiar truths. In the Old Testament, it was the priests who served in the tabernacle and temple who were clothed in linen. You know, priests would offer sacrifices for sins for their people. Daniel sees someone like a priest. But he's also clothed with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz, 
around his waist. So gold from Euphaz was the finest gold available. And so this symbolizes royalty. This man is not just priestly, he's kingly. Verse 6, his body was like beryl. Beryl's a, a precious translucent stone. Notice the word like. He was like this. He was like this. This tells you that what Daniel is seeing is really indescribable. And so he's, he's grasping at straws. He's, he's comparing them to familiar earthly things to arrive at some sort of description that he can write down. In some sense, this man's body is hard to see. It's luminous, reflecting light in every direction. His face, like the appearance of lightning, the text says. Now, if Daniel had been thinking about the Exodus... Do you remember when lightning appears? When the Lord descended on Mount Sinai and made a covenant with his people. You know, this ought to have reminded Daniel of the Lord's covenant faithfulness, his glory, his power. The text says his eyes were like flaming torches. They were like fire. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, which means polished bronze. Again, lots of light. All of these symbolize this man's holiness and purity. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Literally, the sound of a roar. Like the sound of raging waves crashing on the shore. Or, or the noise of a stadium filled with people. The point is, this was, his voice was loud and overwhelming. You know, when people heard the voice of God speaking on Mount Sinai, they were so afraid of God's holy voice that they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Now, who is this man that Daniel sees? You know, he appears again in chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. And it looks like this man's in charge. He speaks authoritatively. Now, some would say that this is an angel representing God's glory. But there's one other passage in scripture that uses similar imagery. And it's used to describe the risen Lord Jesus in all his glory. Look at Revelation 1, 13 to 15. <clears throat> John says, He saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, like the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, verse 9. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Where have we heard that before? Refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. See, the similarity is hard to miss. It appears that Daniel saw a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. And he alone saw the vision and a glimpse, just a glimpse of his holy appearance was traumatic to Daniel. Friends, this is consistent throughout the scriptures that when sinners encounter a glimpse of the glory of God, they tremble in their sinful creatureliness. And this is what happens to Daniel. Look at verses 7 to 9. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them. And they fled to hide themselves. This is similar to Paul's experience on the road to Damascus when he alone saw the risen Lord Jesus. Paul was blinded by the bright light and Daniel, as we will see, will become mute. Verse 8, So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. We see that, that this was the Apostle John's response as well. When he sees the glorified risen Christ, he writes in Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, John Calvin once noticed that in the scriptures, the more a person is described as righteous, the more he trembles in the presence of a holy God. Imagine that. Why do you think that is? It's because the more you grow in your knowledge and understanding of who God is, the more you see your sin. 
the more you tremble before him. Beloved, the holiness of God, even a glimpse of his spectacular glory, is deadly to the sinner and traumatic even to the holiest of his saints. So think about Job, who put his hand over his mouth after hearing God speak. Think of Habakkuk, whose lips started to quiver and his legs started to tremble. Think of Moses, who trembled in fear at the Lord's presence at Sinai. Or the prophet Isaiah, who, after having that vision of God on his throne in Isaiah 6, said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm sinful, my context is sinful, I'm soaking in sin. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Friends, if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you have spent any time thinking about what God is like. Have you thought about that? What is God like? Perhaps you thought God is like you. But the Bible tells us that God is not like us. He is pure and holy and good. And in light of his holiness, we stand condemned before him because we're sinners. We have not done what is good and right in his eyes. This is God's assessment of every sinner. But this God, in his great mercy, has made a way to reconcile sinners to himself. And this is what he revealed to Daniel. That in the fullness of time, he would send his son, the Lord Jesus, who would atone for the sins of his people, to forgive them to receive them into his everlasting kingdom. Jesus is that Messiah, and he accomplished this by his death and resurrection on the cross for all who would repent of their sins and believe in him. So I ask you, have you considered God by considering who Jesus is? Now, what was the point of this vision of God? Was it merely to terrorize this old man No, Daniel needed to be reminded how great God was. Even as he was thinking and meditating on his his people's hesitance to leave Babylon and the many problems that they were facing in the land, even as he was contemplating that long troubled time that was yet to unfold, he needed to be reminded of the greatness of the one who sat on the throne and ruled over history. You see, the vision of God's holiness and greatness and power exposes our sinful hearts but it also comforts us and encourages us to persevere. Beloved, this will be a great comfort to you when you are overwhelmed by things that are absolutely out of your control. If that's you, then you don't need therapy. You need theology. You need to meditate on the glories of Christ to see what he has graciously accomplished for you in the past so that you can trust in him for your turbulent present and for your uncertain future. You see, our God does not change. Therefore, he is our anchor in the storm, our refuge and our strength. We know that God intended this vision to be of comfort to Daniel because of what we see next. Look at verses 10 to 11. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Remember, Daniel lifted up his eyes and looked at the man in linen. Then he falls face down Now someone touches him and he gets up on all fours. This is an angel, possibly Gabriel, for Gabriel does the same thing in chapter 8, verse 18. But he is not named in this chapter, so we'll just call him an angel. Verse 11, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. You know, this angel ministers to Daniel by reminding him of God's love and tells him that he was sent to tell him something. Specifically, what will happen in those 62 weeks, that troubled time in the life of God's people. But before Daniel hears those truths, there's something he needs to understand about the way God rules over history about the way he brings about his kingdom purposes. Daniel needs to understand that there's more to reality, more to history than what meets the eye. And that brings us to our third and final point, 
Daniel will learn about the spiritual warfare that goes on behind the scenes of history. Look at verses 12 to 14. Then he said to me, this angel who was sent to Daniel, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. This is similar to what Gabriel told Daniel in chapter 9, isn't it? As soon as Daniel started praying, he was heard. And Gabriel was dispatched to bring God's word in the form of a vision to Daniel. He came in swift flight. But Daniel has been fasting and praying for 21 days. Why the delay? Yeah, was this particular angel slow? Did he get lost? Did he run out of mobile data on his Google Maps? Don't you hate that when that happens? Look at verse 13. He says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia, remember that Babylon has fallen, the Persians are ruling the kingdom. The prince or ruler of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. You know, the word withstood means to oppose or resist someone. Now this prince or ruler is not a human ruler, but an evil spirit or a demon. See, human rulers or princes cannot withstand angels. We know this from scripture. So think of the angel of death striking down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Or think of that angel in 2 Kings verse 19 who went into enemy camp and struck down 185,000 men of Assyria. One angel did that damage. 185,000 men. He could have done more. Or think about that fateful moment when the soldiers gang up on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter is so eager to defend Jesus and Jesus stops him and says to him, Matthew 26, 53, just to remind Peter who's really in charge of history. Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? One legion equals 6,000. 12 legions. You do the math. That would have been a massacre. So this prince or ruler is an evil spirit or a demon. And in this case, he was able to withstand this angel who was sent to Daniel. Now, angels and demons are not equal to God. Let's be clear about that. They are creatures. They were created by God. They're not omnipresent. They're not everywhere. Uh, they're not omniscient. They do not know everything. They're not all-powerful. They're not omnipotent. They can only do what God permits them to do. They are spirit creatures. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, by the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So whenever scripture speaks of rulers or authorities in the heavenly places, this is a reference to the spiritual forces of evil. Ultimately, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We read of that in 1 John 3, 8. Uh, the devil whom Ephesians 2 calls the prince of the power of the air. And he, Jesus triumphed over Satan and his minions at the cross. Uh, we read about that in Colossians 2, 15. He says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. But the closest we will get to a job description of an angel is found in Hebrews 1 verse 14, where they are called ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those, that's you, who are to inherit salvation. So they are God's servants. And that's what this angel was sent to do, to minister to Daniel, one who would inherit salvation because he was trusting in the promises that spoke of a coming Messiah. 
But he was opposed on the way by the prince of Persia, an evil spirit who had been assigned to influence the kings of Persia, to oppose and harm God's people and his kingdom purposes. And this spiritual struggle, this battle, went on for 21 days. Now how did the angel eventually get to Daniel? Look at the text. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Now this is the first time we are introduced to the angel Michael and he is called one of the chief princes or an archangel as he is called in Jude 1 9. Uh, one who is strong enough to contend with Satan himself. Now the Bible does give us does not give us a whole lot of information about angels and for good reason I think. God doesn't want us to be fixated on creatures but on the creator. But it appears that there is some sort of hierarchy among angelic beings since he's called the archangel. And Michael also has a particular responsibility. Look at verse 21. He is called your prince. He's not Daniel's personal angel because the your is in plural. He is the angel assigned to serve the people of Israel. You see that in chapter 12 verse 1. He is called the great prince who has charge of your people. So Michael was dispatched to help this angel because demonic forces were starting to gain traction. He says, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Again, kings refer to supernatural beings. But with Michael's arrival, this angel was free to carry the message to Daniel. And he says, verse 14, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So he's here to tell Daniel about what will happen to the people of Israel in the future, many days from now. Friends, what Daniel is being told is that when people in their sin try to thwart God's plans, when earthly kings and governments oppose God's people, when the Samaritans interfere with the building of the temple, when Christians are persecuted for their faith, when lies and propaganda dominate the media, when society makes laws to facilitate sin rather than holiness, and it all seems to be working against the church and what we are called to do in obedience to Christ, when opposition comes directly or indirectly, overtly or covertly, you ought to know that there are dark and evil forces at work. Beloved, we live in a fallen world. This world, as we know, is steeped in sin and hostility against God. 1 John 2.16 says, The desires of the flesh are of this world. And Ephesians 2.2-3 says that the prince of the power of the air, Satan, influences those fallen desires. He tempts people and he draws them away to do his will. The world and the flesh and the devil work in harmony. They work in harmony together. But make no mistake, when we sin, we are culpable for our sin. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul who sins shall die. So we cannot blame Satan and demons for our sin. You cannot say, the devil made me do it. Which is what our mother Eve said. Remember, Adam said, the woman made me do it. She said, the serpent deceived me. See, sinners love to pass the buck rather than acknowledge their rebellion against the holy God. You know, there was, a, there was a, a church that I was a part of long ago, many years ago, where a woman committed adultery. And one of the elders says, I think she has a spirit of adultery. And I thought to myself, no, she just committed the sin of adultery. You don't need to cast out a demon. She needs to repent. Or last Sunday, I was talking to someone where he was wondering if he was wondering if he had a spirit of deception. And in my mind, I thought, no, you're just deceived. You don't have a spirit of bitterness. You're bitter. You need to repent. Don't blame the devil for your sin. God's word is very clear. We are responsible for our sin. No one goes to hell because of the devil. You go to hell because of your sin. You're judged because of your sin. But praise God that because of Christ's victory on the cross, he bruised the head of Satan and will one day return to cast him into the lake of fire. 
Because of what Jesus did, we stand secure in him. Praise God that his Holy Spirit abides in us so that he who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. That's Satan and his demons. 1 John 4.4 4. This is why we come to the Father through Jesus the Son. We believe in the truths of the gospel revealed to us in the scriptures. We trust in what he has promised to do for us and we pray. And when God's people pray, God works. He dispatches help. When Daniel prayed, angels went to war. Think about that. The Samaritans may have been having a, you know, they were having a field day with the returned exiles. The politics in Persia couldn't have been any indifferent to God's plans. But the most influential, the most powerful man at that point in history was an old man on his knees. Beloved, no matter what crisis you as a child of God may experience in this world, remember that behind the scenes, there is a war going on between the kingdom of darkness and the throne of God. What you see taking place on the stage of human history is inextricably linked to what is going on in the spiritual realm. Do you remember that passage in Colossians 2.15 that we read when Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities on the cross? Right? This is his great redemptive work. Well, Revelation 12 pulls back the curtain and shows us what happened in the spiritual realm at that time when Jesus accomplished his work on the cross. This is what Revelation 12, 7 to 9 tells us. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And that great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Remember Jesus in the Gospels before he goes to the cross? What does he say? I saw Satan fall like lightning. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Oh friend, if you don't know Christ, repent of your sins. Put your trust in him as your savior and your only God. He is the only one who has overcome the forces of evil in this world. Trust in him and you will dwell safe and secure in his everlasting arms. Beloved, this spiritual warfare that we get a glimpse of in Daniel is very real. And the fiercest battle fought on earth, according to one theologian, would seem like a mere game compared to the spiritual conflict that takes place in the heavenlies. You know, spiritual warfare is described even in the New Testament. Let me give you two examples. Number one, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. Paul says, that when we present the gospel clearly to unbelievers and they reject it, here's what's going on behind the scenes. He writes, and even if our gospel is veiled, it cannot be seen or trusted, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan and his demons, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is why you must preach the gospel to the unbeliever, but you must also pray. For only the one who has the power to overcome the evil one, and who has overcome the forces of evil, can open their eyes to see the glory of Christ. So what exactly are we doing when we present the truths of Christ to unbelievers? Well, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. He says we are engaged in spiritual warfare. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's demonic forces. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's a lot of warfare language. And so we speak God's word, trusting in his power to save, and we pray. Here's a second example. Turn to Ephesians 6. You know, Paul is talking about our sanctification, the believer's sanctification in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. 
And when he gets to Ephesians 6, as if to say, now do you think that the world, your flesh, and the forces of evil in the heavenly places are going to be happy with that? Absolutely not. And so Paul says this in Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then he goes on to talk about those truths of scripture that we ought to be meditating on. And he describes them metaphorically as pieces of armor that we put on when we go into battle. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And what do you do after you become believingly familiar with those truths? He says you pray at all times, making all kinds of supplications. Be alert if you, want to be, if you want to persevere, pray, keep praying. Beloved, do not underestimate the importance of prayer. God uses our prayers as means to accomplish his glorious purposes. Now when people hear this passage about angels and demons, you know, they typically have two questions. One, what should we do with all this information? about angels and demons. Well, you should avoid two extremes. Avoid two extremes. One would be to deny their existence, right? Like, shh, don't talk about them. But to do that would be to deny the truth. The truth in this passage is given to us for what? For our comfort, to know that God dispatches his ministering spirits to go to war when we pray according to his will. The other extreme that you should avoid, don't be thinking about them all the time. Don't be preoccupied with them. Don't meditate on angels and demons. You know, Daniel, Daniel is not thinking about angels and demons, is he? He's not thinking about territorial spirits. He's not thinking about guardian angels. What's he doing? He's praying to God. See, there's no power in our prayers per se. Power belongs to God. This is why we express our dependence on him by praying. So, you know, don't look for a demon behind every bush and rock. You know, don't meditate on demons. Meditate on Christ and his glorious work. So avoid those two extremes. The other question people typically have is, why does God choose to act in this way? You know, send angels. Why send angels sort of secondary agents when he could merely speak a word and accomplish things himself. I mean, look at this. After he sends one, a demon opposes that angel, another angel needs to be sent. I mean, it all seems so slow and inefficient. Now, God sometimes does act directly. He speaks and things come into being. But at other times, he puts a man to sleep then he takes out his rib, and then he fashions a woman. Beloved, unlike you and I, God is not in a hurry. See, God is not in a hurry. He is all wise. He knows all things. He does all things for his glory, and he does all things well. Wouldn't it be great if you had Jesus as your pastor? instead of four flawed elders. If he could do things directly. Or think about all the things that he has called us to do for the sake of his kingdom. Think about your sanctification. I wish he could just snap his fingers and I could be glorified. God does all things well. He is all wise. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
See, the point of this revelation is to prepare Daniel to receive the revelation of chapter 11, to prepare his heart to show him that history is more complicated than you think and that God is always doing a million more things than you can ever imagine. But knowing that this is what goes on in the heavenlies teaches us a lesson. Here's the lesson. If you know that the real battle is a spiritual one, then when we face trials of various kinds, we will not rely on our own resources, on earthly resources, but we will turn to God's word and prayer. That's the point. After all, if this passage teaches us anything, it's this, that God is strong and all-sufficient and his servants, no matter how righteous, are weak. Look at verses 15 to 19. If you want a picture of weakness, here it is. 15 to 19, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. So Daniel is enabled to speak. And I said to him who sto stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. In other words, I'm overwhelmed with anguish. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Can you see how weak Daniel is? Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. Another angel. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. Notice his words strengthened him. I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Notice how much text is devoted to describing Daniel as weak, speechless, trembling, breathless. So much text. What's the point? It's only by God's grace that we can be strengthened to endure. That's the point. See, God is bringing Daniel to the end of himself so that he can utterly depend on him for strength as he receives the vision of chapters 11 and 12. And beloved, this ought to be our attitude when we approach the word. Be utterly dependent on him as we study the word so that we will know something of the Spirit's ministry to us through his all-sufficient word. Now that Daniel has been made aware of what happens behind the scenes, he is now ready to hear of the troubling times ahead. Knowing that the Lord of the armies of heaven is moving history along to its purposeful end. So the angel informs him of more battles ahead. Verse 20, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. So this is ongoing. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. Right? Greece will succeed Medo-Persia. Another demon will come. We've already read in chapter 8 of the great harm that will come to, the, to God's people during the time of Antiochus. And so this is a glimpse of the warfare that will go on at that time. Verse 21. But I will tell you. So that's why he's come. Do you know why I've come? Here's why I've come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. So this book of truth is the book of history that's God's, that God is unfolding to Daniel. This is what will be revealed to Daniel. And then he says this. There is none who contends by my side against these, presumably these demons, except Michael, your prince. Now there's some mystery here. We don't know exactly why only Michael is assigned this task. But it may not be a complaint, but rather a statement expressing that there's no one as courageous as Michael or no one who contends by my side as fiercely as Michael. Chapter 11, verse 1. And as for me, so this angel, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Isn't that incredible? Daniel is made aware that angels are involved, not just when evil things need to be opposed, but even when good things need to get done. Imagine that, this particular angel enabled Darius. It was during his first year that the decree was issued by Cyrus under Darius's co-regency. And this angel is saying, I enable that under God's command. Think about that. 
We know that God did that. We should know that he uses secondary angel, agents to accomplish his will. Again, why are we given this information? The point is you need to know that God has infinite resources at his disposal. So don't go seeking help elsewhere. Go to him in prayer. Beloved, God is sovereign over all of history. And through the cross of Christ, he has disarmed the powers of darkness. And he has made a mockery of them. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The serpent's head has been bruised. And one day he will be done away with when Christ returns. Till then God strengthens us with his word by the power of his spirit. And we have been given the great privilege of coming before his throne in prayer to ask him to accomplish all his good purposes. So let's sing with joy. The battle's fierce, but remember, the victory's won. God will supply by his grace all that we need. And as our days, our strength shall be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God, and you are the source of all our strength. Give us humble hearts, O Lord, so that we would meditate on your word day and night and come before your throne for grace and mercy in time of need. May we not be greatly shaken when we read the newspapers and hear of instability and chaos all around us, but instead fix our hearts on your precious promises and pray for strength to obey you and endure. Bless the ministry of your word in this congregation, that your glory may be displayed, your glory and your wisdom may be displayed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In Christ's name we pray.